0: everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tessa Grossman. And this episode really combines Tessa's background of sociology and sports psychology with her current role in strength and conditioning with high-level football players and other athletes. So we kind of blend a little bit of sociology, a little bit of sports psychology, and a little bit of strength and conditioning all into one episode today. And we discuss a lot of things that I feel like are not often discussed. So I know you're going to love the episode today. Enjoy. Tessa, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me on. I'm stoked to be here.
0: So for people who might not you know, recognize your name or maybe they don't realize that you know, you're one of a very few female strength coaches working at the D1 level, and not only that, but you recently finished an internship with the New York Jets, I believe. Would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you've been doing?
1: Yeah. So my name is Tessa Grossman. Uh, I'm from San Diego, California, grew up down there my entire life. I went to Dartmouth College and I played softball for them. I played all four years and then did my undergraduate degree in sociology, actually. Um, I went to Illinois State and I did my master's degree in sports psychology while I was there. Um, I was a graduate assistant, assisted with football, and then I worked with men's tennis, women's golf, and women's gymnastics. From there I actually did a 3 week internship with the Falcons during training camp and they helped me apply and in- apply for the position at Middle Tennessee State. So my when I was first at Middle Tennessee State, when I first got hired on, I was Olympic only, so I came in I was hired on to do women's basketball, volleyball and women's soccer. After being there for about a year, I was helping out with the football side just because that's something that I enjoy and something I wanted to still be a part of even though it wasn't on my slate of sports. And from there, we ended up having our assistant director position open and I was asked to move over. And so I got promoted after being at Middle Tennessee State for a year. So now I just work with football and women's basketball. Um, And as you said earlier, I just got back from a six-week internship with the New York Jets, where I was with them for all of training camp this year. Um, along the way, there's been a lot of other internship stops. Uh, I interned all the way throughout college. So I was with Cal football. I did Dartmouth football. I was with the Los Angeles Rams in 2018 as an intern. So there's been, I've gotten to be in a lot of really cool places. I'm very grateful.
0: No, Tessa, that's certainly an incredible backstory. And I think it's really amazing how you know you've kind of bounced all around the country for lack of a better way to put it you grew up in san diego you went to dartmouth you were in atlanta for a while you were in new york for a while you're in tennessee now you've kind of been everywhere by the sounds and i'd imagine that gives you a very unique outlook and perspective on things just from being so many different places and seeing how so many different programs and systems operate And I think your journey is also unique in the sense that you're one of very few strength coaches I know who come from more of a sociology and sports psychology background, as opposed to a straight like exercise science background. What kind of made you want to pursue that as opposed to like straight exercise science?
1: So it was kind of by accident, to be (laughs) completely honest. Um... Dartmouth, so I knew Dartmouth College, like going Ivy League for me, that was, that was my power five experience. Like that was what I wanted. I grew up, academics was very, very important to me. That's what my parents preached to me. Athletics was awesome, but academics was always like the top-notch thing. Um, So for me to go Ivy League, that was kind of like the end goal. Dartmouth actually was my dream school growing up, which is pretty sick that I got to say, I got to play for my dream school. Um, But when it came down to what originally I thought I wanted to do biology, and biology also happens to be one of the hardest majors at Dartmouth. So when I got there and I actually looked at the list of classes and realized that I was basically going to be with a bunch of Ivy League pre-med students. I was like, mm, I don't think this is for me. I think this there's a little bump of where I'm at right now. I don't think I want to put this much time into this. Uh, so that kind of forced me to find a new a new major. And I I actually ended up having two different offers. So I had an offer for Dartmouth and I had an offer for a smaller D3 school out in um, Washington called Whitworth and they had exercise science Dartmouth didn't and it kind of came down to which one which route am I going to pursue am I going to go get the major that I know would help me with what I want to go into because like before I even got into college I knew I wanted to be a strength coach like I knew that's the route I wanted to go or do I go Ivy League and kind of figure it out along the way Um, but when your dream school is offering you a position like it's kind of hard to say no so I was like, all right, I'm going to gonna t- I'm gonna go to Dartmouth, I'll figure out a degree, and I'm just going to intern as much as I can to make up on the practical side what I don't have on the academic side.
0: I'd imagine that was a lot of extra hours and extra work for you going through college compared to if you just went exercise science, correct?
1: I don't know, to be honest, because I think even if I would have done an exercise science degree, I still think I would have done as many internships as I did. I just genuinely loved it and enjoyed the experience. Um, anytime I basically had an off semester, I would try to find somewhere to intern. Like, I just loved being in the weight room. So, for me, I think it still would have looked really, really similar, even if I had gone with an exercise science degree. I just think that my fire, fire was a little bit bigger because I knew that that was probably something that people were going to question about me when I started applying for graduate assistantships at the end of college.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that extra drive and ambition that you had, Tessa. And you mentioned you've always kind of loved being in the weight room, or at least you did in college. Was that something that you're kind of brought up in with, you know, sports when you were in middle school, high school? Or did you kind of find the love for the weight room while in college? Or where did that come from?
1: So I wasn't brought up like lifting or anything of that nature. I was definitely brought up to be active, brought up to be physical. I think anyone who lives in California, that's like just kind of the lifestyle, to be honest. Like you're always outside. You're always doing something. You're always moving. Um, So I definitely grew up being very active. But when it really started to click in for me was really when I started recruit or trying to get recruited to play college ball my sophomore year of high school, they basically told me like, hey, you need to get stronger if you want to go play D1. Like- you're just not strong enough right now. So I went to our high school football strength coach and I was like, can you teach me how to lift? And he did. Um, so that was what kind of like stoked it. So I like learned to lift my sophomore year of high school, but what really kind of lit the fire under me and like made everything click of like, oh, this is this is the degree that I wanna pursue. Or like, this is the area that I wanna go into when I get out of college was, um, I started working out at a private sector facility uh, my senior year of high school. And I was working out four days a week. I was loving it. And that's when someone was like, hey, like you realize you could do this as a job, right? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, okay, let's do it. And so from there, it was, it just like, I don't know, it was instant. I was like, yes, this is what I need to be doing. And how can I figure out how to make this happen?
0: I love that. I love that. And
1: our softball coach for high school was also the head football coach. And so I think that's kind of where the connection came for me was just like, I was kind of a little bit more familiar with the football staff. But I actually don't think that's where my love for football started. I think that kind of also happened on accident. The way that my internships lined up and the population that I started working with, like my first internship was with the private sector place. It was the private sector place that I worked out at in high school. So I came back and I interned for them after my first year of college. They just happened to have a really high population of high school football athletes. And so that was like who I was introduced to pretty quickly and felt comfortable around pretty quickly. Um, and then same thing, the next place I interned at was Dartmouth, and I was there during the summertime, and, you know, it's a small D1 school, so who's on during the summer? Well, football is. And so that's what I ended up working with there. Um, and so after doing kind of two internships that just happened to be football-based, it was just kind of where my heart, heart felt the most comfortable, and I just rolled with it. So here we are, you know, six years later.
0: I love that. I love that kind of fell right into it there and kind of all the pieces just kind of formed together as you got into it by the sounds. Now, when you were growing up and you're in the weight room and that sort of thing, were you kind of the only female athlete that was working out at the time? Was there a big female athlete population or what did that look like?
1: Um. So in high school, in high school, I got to work out the women's basketball team a little bit. So that was that was nice because I felt like as I was really learning how to lift, I was around other females, which definitely made it more approachable. Uh, but when I got into, when I started working out of the private sector facility, that's when it was all guys. So I would go to these private sector classes and it would be like 10 other high school football, high school baseball dudes, and then me. And I don't know. I liked it. Like, I liked the intensity of it. I liked the challenge of it. I liked the competitiveness of it. I didn't like that when the boys would beat me. Like, I didn't mind it. Um, And I really didn't think twice the fact that I was usually the only female in those types of environments. It just kind of was like, all right, well, I'm here to train. You're here to train. Let's train.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love the competitiveness within you too, Tessa. That's awesome. Um, It's, it's funny you mentioned feeling like you're kind of the only one in the private facility because for the majority of the people I talk with, they kind of say similar things is it seems like, you know, at least for the high school level, Strength and conditioning is not a big thing for female athletes, it seems. You know, it seems like their first exposure to lifting is really once they get into college. Now, I know you've got experience working with the women's basketball team, you know, at the college level. Would you say that you tend to see that as kind of a true statement, or are you seeing a big, like, push and development in strength and conditioning for females right now?
1: I think it depends on the sport. Um, I will say there's been changes, especially, so I played college softball, right? So that's kind of the background that I come from. That's a sport where you're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to be powerful. How hard can you hit the ball? How hard can you throw the ball? I would say from that perspective, even when I was in college, it started to become where travel ball teams are now, they're like synced up with a private sector training place. So now you have to go and you have to do weight training at least twice a week if you're going to play for this club team. Um, so I think like on the softball side of things, you definitely have seen that progress. And it's expected. Like I think now if you were a softball player and you go into a college program and you've never lifted a weight before, I think that would be very rare. I don't think you see that much more. Um, you definitely saw that like with my freshman class when I, I came into college in 2016. We had a couple kids who were maybe more unfamiliar with it and then a couple of us who were super familiar with it. But now all the classes, I would say, I would assume are familiar with it just based on what I've seen, the trends in recruiting and just how much softball has grown as a sport. But with basketball, it's still like I get a mixed bag. And granted, I've only been with one basketball program. You know, I've only been with Middle Tennessee State, but we get a mixed bag. I got girls who come in and, you know, they're ready to roll. They've been lifting for two or three years in high school. Their high school team's lifted. Um, And then I get some girls who really have never lifted before or their exposure is very minimal. Also, I think where sometimes it gets a little bit different is when you get into college sports, you obviously have maybe some more international students who come in. And I would say the levels of that are very, very, are varying um, in terms of what type of exposure they've had. Once again, same thing. I've had basketball girls come in who have been lifting the entire time. Then I have basketball girls come in and they've never touched a weight in their life. So I don't think there's like a particular trend in which like this sport lifts this sport doesn't I think there are sports where it's you could probably assume more but it's still it's still a very mixed bag
0: yeah what would you say roughly if you had to guesstimate a percentage of athletes that you work with that are lifting versus not lifting when they start to work with you there what would you say your rough percentage is
1: oh that's a tough question honestly I'll probably you high I'd say 80 85 percent I would say most of them have some familiarity with some sort of weightlifting, whether it's something basic like push-ups and goblet squats, um, or I have kids who come in and you know, they've been doing CrossFit. I think, I think that's an interesting topic, like CrossFit <laughs> is something that kids love to do because it's fun, their parents probably do it, you know, it's competitive. I don't mind it as long as we're smart about it and we use it safely, but if that's how you're gonna get into training, I'm not mad at it as long as, you know, we pick our moments. Middle of the season, maybe not the time to go ham on CrossFit, but off-season when you're at home in the summer and the option is don't work out or do CrossFit, I right, do your thing, girl. Just come back in shape and come back healthy.
0: That, that's uh, that's funny. I I love that. Um, we, we can have a separate discussion on CrossFit <laughs> at some point. Tessa, I think it's really interesting that you kind of spelled it out in the sense of there's a lot of – Exposure, but there's varying depths of exposure, if you will, where some people have a very shallow well of training, and others have a very deep well of training, if you will, where some individuals are very well, you know, versed in the world of lifting and the weight room and that sort of thing, and others, um, you mentioned, like push-ups might be their only exposure to it. So I think that's an interesting topic to get into. Uh, why do you think we see that in female athletics? Um, you know, I don't have any stats to reference off the top of my head, but I feel like in general, we see it more with female athletes than male athletes. Why do you think there's like a disconnect, if you will, between training depth or um, intent of training in the female athlete athlete world?
1: Okay. Um, That's, I feel like there's a lot of layers to that question. I think as always, it really just depends on the context of what your athletes were going up in as well. And what the sport is, Um, like I said, like the softball world, you're supposed to be strong. Like, I think if you talk to most college strength coaches, they'll tell you, oh, my softball team. Oh, yeah, they're one of my most high energy, you know, one of my heaviest lifting, most about the weight room type of teams. Even if they don't necessarily love the weight room, they'll still figure out a way to like it. Um, And so I think that a large part of it just kind of comes from maybe – what do they have exposure to? I think when you get to be in states like Florida's, Texas, Cali's, where you get to be outside year round and you're playing competitive year round, especially for like your outdoor sports, I think those types of things, it becomes inevitable that the other aspects of athletics comes into play, such as training. I think sometimes maybe when you're in you know, I'm just assuming here, but I would assume that if you grow up in a smaller town or a more rural area, maybe you just don't have the same exposure to it. You know, maybe your exposure is a YouTube class online because you don't have a private sector facility, or maybe your high school doesn't have a strength coach. Those would be the types of things that I would assume. And like, I can't say for certain, but those are that would be what I would assume, what kind of impact the different levels that you get uh, when you get to college and you have these female athletes come in. I also think there's some stereotypes that go along with training i know a big one i hear a lot from like my freshman girls not always freshmen but maybe new girls that i haven't worked with before is that i don't want to get big i don't want to get bulky i don't want to look like a dude i don't want my arms to look like a guy's arms and then i have to explain to them how much you'd really have to eat and train to actually be that big and um they're like but they still don't believe you it's like the same thing as like trying to tell them like hey maybe we could take some protein powder they just like immediately associate it with being a bro and I'm like, no, like taking protein powder doesn't just make you this muscle head bro. like there's way more to it. like you eat one meal a day, trust me, you're not gonna get crazy bulky, I promise. Um, so I think a lot of the stereotypes play a big role into it. and I know that once you kind of get them past the stereotypes and they realize what you're saying is true, like, hey, I'm not gonna look like a dude if I dumbbell bench once a week. Then they start to see, oh, this like does help me in my sport. And that is where you kind of hit that point of them buying in to training more, understanding that just because we squat once a week doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to become a power lifter.
0: Look at you out here flexing that sociology degree, Tessa. I love it. <laughs> I love it. The layers. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on the stereotype point as well, because for my eyes, as a physical therapist, I treat a lot of female athletes. And this is not the case for all of them, but many of them, part of the reason they're seeing me is they don't have the nutrition in check in the sense that they are training very, very hard in sport. They're throwing in extra runs and different things like that outside of sport to stay in shape. Um, and then when I ask them about you know, their nutrition intake... Um, and I'm not a dietitian by any means or anything like that, but you know, the the one girl the other day told me her breakfast was a cucumber, um, which I, I kind of had to search for a few words for because there's almost no calories in that whatsoever, and she had a very big soccer game later that night. So I think that there's a huge conversation to be had about. You know what the weight room does and doesn't do, and the nutrition to support it. Because I mean, plain and simple, if you're not pulling in three to four thousand calories a day, you're probably not going to get big and bulky and that sort of thing. Um, And likewise, if you want to achieve a higher level of performance as a female athlete, I'd imagine you need to eat more for breakfast than just a single cucumber.
1: Yeah, and I. I think you brought another very interesting layer into training female athletes, and that is the diet side. And obviously, I want to preface this by saying I'm not a dietitian by any means. Um, You know, a lot of the information that I tell my athletes is information that I've either gotten from dietitians or I've done research on my own. But it's one of the hardest parts. And I would say, like, when I was an athlete, I ate like crap. I know this like yeah I would go to the dining hall and like I'd have my rice and chicken and I'd be healthy great but then I'd go study in the library for three hours and then what would I do to the library oh I'd go eat some mozzarella sticks or hey I'm gonna get some ice cream like yeah it started off smooth by the end of the night like it was a mess um and I didn't take my nutrition seriously at all because I was 18 19 20 and I recovered like that and you know I'm in my head I'm like well I woke up fine the next day so I can just keep doing this right and it didn't it didn't click for me till after college. After college, that's when I started realizing like, hey, my nutrition really matters. I'm 22 now. I can't just eat all this junk food and wake up feeling great the next morning, ready to roll. And that's when I was actually like completely redid, or I guess that's like, I don't know, reassess what I was eating and change a lot of my eating habits. And I was like, wow, I feel so much better. Like, this is crazy. This is insane. And I try to preach what I went through to my female athletes all the time, not even just my female athletes, but all of my athletes, female and male. Um, and you try to preach it to them and you see them not always listen to it, but you can't even fault them because I know that someone preached this to me when I was 19 in college and I didn't listen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tough. And, You know, I sit down with each of my kids, each of my basketball girls at the beginning of the year, and we talk about goals, and nutrition goals is one of the things that we talk about, and I can't tell you how many girls I've had or female athletes I've worked with where they'll tell me, yeah, I eat one meal a day. Okay, what's that meal? Oh, I eat a Chipotle bowl. Oh, I eat a Chick-fil-A sandwich and fries, and I'm like, okay, and so we're eating a Pop-Tart for breakfast and then a Chipotle bowl at 6 p.m. and nothing else, and they'll be like, oh, well, sometimes I'll have like a bag of chips or you know, I'll have some packs of gummies and from the locker room before practice. And I'm like, bro, like this is not enough. Like, but then you get into the sticky area. You get into the sticky area of females and weight. And that is a whole nother topic um uh, and to itself. And I think that learning how to handle that, especially if you're a school that doesn't have a nutritionist on staff, if you're a strength coach for female teams, that's like definitely something you have to be aware of. And I think you have to learn how to. Just kind of be aware of how your athletes eat and what they eat and just like little signs because you do get a lot of female athletes who will start to have eating issues or body issues and obviously we're here to help but those things will also harm their training and harm their performance in sport.
0: Look at you flexing that sports psychology side now too, test And wow. <laughs> Um, No, I think you bring up a great point there is it almost seems like, and this is not my area of expertise by any means, but from what I see on clinical presentation, there's female athletes who almost don't eat at all, kind of like you mentioned. And then there's some who are, you know, eating a lot, but they're not eating like high quality foods. And I've almost... To personally develop a preference for the latter of the two, because look, when you're 18, 19 years old, like you mentioned, you can still eat the mozzarella sticks and be okay the next day. It's not like end of the world kind of thing. Um, You know, you've got youth on your side. So I think that, you know, there's certainly an interesting conversation to be had about that in more depth. I might not be the best person to have that conversation, though. As you mentioned, though, nutritional status and caloric intake. Can have a drastic impact on someone's physical performance, uh, whether that be in games or matches or in the weight room as well. And I'd imagine that you're probably tracking a number of different objective data points that would kind of look, kind of help you clue in whether or not an athlete is starting to overreach or overtrain a little bit, or I guess, you know, fall victim to that under recovery monster, for lack of a better way to put it what kind of things are you seeing from a physical side that kind of clue you into, Hey, maybe we've got some of those deeper issues from a under recovery side coming into the picture.
1: I think a couple of things I do weigh my female athletes. When I started in college, I like went back and forth on this one. um, Just because I was definitely someone that when I like, I'm very open about this. When I got out of college, I definitely struggled with some eating issues. I definitely had some disordered eating problems And I had a hard time learning how to eat to just be a regular person and not eat to necessarily be an athlete anymore. Um, I feel like when you're in college as a female, a lot of times you're just thinking about like, you know, this is what my body's job is. I'm supposed to hit the ball hard. I'm supposed to, you know, shoot three. I'm supposed to do this, do that, be able to run up and down a field for 90 minutes. And then when you get out of college, all of a sudden it's like your body's job or main responsibility is not to do that anymore. So how do I fuel now? Because now I'm not fueling for this thing that I just fueled my body for for the last 15 plus years. Um, so because of that, I'm very open with my kids about like kind of the process I went through in hopes that it'll help them. Because I've noticed that a big thing, like a lot of, just with my own personal experiences, what I will try to look at in my athletes is weight. And I always tell my kids like, hey, you don't have to look at the scale. Like if you're someone that the scale is really triggering for you, then awesome. When you step on it, just turn the other way. I won't say your weight to you and I'm just going to take a note of it because obviously if someone's dropping a lot of weight in season, that's probably an issue of under eating or under recovering. If someone's gaining a lot of weight, a lot of weight in season, you know, there's a couple of reasons that may be. Um, Obviously we track weights. We track what you're hitting in terms of percentages. If you can't hit something that's, statistically underneath what I need you to be hitting okay you've lost a large percentage of your strength what are we eating what are we not eating you know I find that usually the sleep the food quality it it decreases pretty rapidly the quicker we get into season and I'm sure that most most strength coaches would agree with me that the deeper you get into season the worse those things get.
0: You, you brought up the topic of sleep test so do you mean to tell me that there's a lot of stressors that female athletes face and, you know, it might be present in the high school or the college population or any population for that matter. And it, it might cause them to lose sleep at night.
1: Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, we talk kids all the time. What's the best method of recovery and they all go sleep. And then they'll come in the next day and you'll be like, how many hours of sleep did you get? And they'll be like, five.
0: five. <laughs> Man. So what kind, of, what kind of struggles with that did you face when you were a college athlete yourself? And how did you go about kind of getting to that point where you could develop a consistent routine?
1: I think a big thing, a big overarching problem in college uh, is that you just feel invincible some days. I mean, you're 18 years old, you're a college athlete, and when you see what your body can get away with and still perform well on, then that becomes the new normal. That becomes a new baseline. Like, Oh, I can sleep five hours and still get up at 5am and crush my conditioning. Sick. I can do this all the time. And I think that's maybe the issue is when you're a kid in college, you get away with it once and you make the jump that this is now something that your body can handle all the time. And it's like, no, your body can handle one day of running on five hours, not seven days in a row and then play five games over the weekend. Um, so I think for me, the big, the big thing that I think made me change some of my sleep habits was brain function. I started to notice as I got later into the college years that my brain just wasn't sharp. It was harder to make decisions. Um, my ability to be locked in at practice. Like we didn't, we'd have days, we didn't practice till 7 p.m. sometimes. And so when you're not getting a lot of sleep and you're not practicing till 7 p.m., that's that's tough to perform well I mean you've already gone to classes especially being in like a highly a very rigorous academic environment that was also something that I felt like a lot of me and my fellow teammates that would contribute to a huge lack of sleep because we just had an insane amount of homework and work to do Um, obviously I can't speak for other people and what their schools were like but for us being an athlete and being a student were equally important and that was preached like you're going to have to figure it out. And so our way to figure it out was to give up sleep. And that wasn't the healthiest choice, but that's the choices that we made. But I think that I understanding that that was my logic. I know that my kids are making the same choices. Um, Unfortunately, though, I do feel like a lot of times with eating and sleeping habits, it's just something that you have to like continue to preach on continue to try to educate. You know, when kids come to you, you try to re-go over all the same things you've been telling them because maybe now it's a little bit more applicable to them uh and you just hope at some point that it's going to sink in because at the end of the day it does take your athlete choosing to make a change a big thing i will try to preach when my athletes are trying to make these changes is don't overhaul everything uh there's a lot of research done that when you try to completely overhaul and change a habit all at once it's really hard to sustain that change and so A big thing we'll talk about, like, okay, for example, with eating habits, I get this all the time. My basketball girls come to me and they tell me, hey, I don't feel like I'm recovering very well. We talk about their eating habits. What are they not eating? Protein. No protein whatsoever. Everything is a carb. And I'll be like, okay, hey, let's start by adding one Ten to fifteen gram protein snack a day. We'll come up with a couple examples. That's like usually my go to starting place with my with my basketball girls. Just because it's small, it's easy. If you don't get it in the morning, you can get it at night. If you don't get it at night, you can get it the next day. It's not something that seems impossible. Um, and so I think when it comes to changing these habits, especially with sleeping and eating. It's just showing them that, hey, it doesn't have to be this crazy change in your everyday routine. It can literally be a five-minute change that can make your day so much better.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that point. I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that a lot of people do try and change everything all at once. And it certainly goes better if we make small but consistent strides forward. Now, have you found, at least from your own experiences, that kind of opening up and being somewhat vulnerable about your past experiences has helped your athletes relate to you a little bit better and kind of understand why they need to take care of themselves? Or do you feel like female athletes are going to do what they do at the end of the day?
1: I don't even think this is like a female athlete thing. I think this is just an athlete thing in general, you know, Mm -hmm. the more... I think nutrition, I think mental health, I think all those things have become such bigger hot button topics. I've had my own personal experiences in both of those areas with things that I've struggled with. Um, I definitely like have to work through anxiety attacks and things of that nature. And I'm super open about that as well with my football kids, with my basketball girls. When I had soccer and volleyball, I was open with them about it. I'm open about it with other coaches that I work with. Not in a way of like, this is like, you know, such a big part of me, but just in a way of like, hey, yeah, like this is something I deal with sometimes and this is how I deal with it. And these are the, you know, ways I've learned to work through it in a positive way. um, And I'm open with it because I don't ever want my kids to feel like they're going through something that no one else is going through. College is hard enough, especially, you know, being an athlete, you know, maybe playtime's not going how you want. Maybe you don't get along with the team. Maybe you feel isolated. Like, there's just so many There's so many aspects of it. Maybe you're away from home. Maybe you don't have a great support system. Maybe you don't feel like you can trust your sport coaches. Like, I don't know, there's 8,000 different ways to kind of pick that apart. But at the end of the day, I don't ever want my kid to feel like I'm going through this thing and no one else is going through it. So I don't mind sharing at all, because even if that kid never comes to me and tells me like, hey, Coach Tess, I'm going through this. And you said you were going through this. So let's talk about it. Even if that exchange never happens, but just them knowing that, hey, like Coach Tess talked about this and I feel like that sometimes, too. So at least I'm not alone. Then that's the win for me.
0: I think I think you bring up an important topic there, Tess, is. For some reason, when we're watching the sports on the TV or, you know, favorite, you know, it's Sunday right now, favorite football team or whatever, we just automatically assume that the athletes aren't like people in a sense. So we kind of forget that, you know, after the game, like, you know, they have parents and families to call and see. They have, you know, like a dog that might, they might have to get home and walk. They might want to get eight, nine hours of sleep, like we've been talking about, or get something good to eat. Um, and instead, we get very angry and irritated about the fact that, you know, they dropped the pass. Why aren't they training? You know, you should dock his pay, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And it, it's it's always interesting to me how we almost kind of look at athletes as athletes and not people first, if that makes sense.
1: Yep um I completely agree I literally just had this conversation with my girls on Friday I told them like people person over player that was something that a college coach said to me and that has stuck with me my I while being an athlete into being a coach and being on the other side but I will tell my basket. I try to tell my basketball girls at least once a week like we love you and appreciate you and support you because of the person that you are like basketball is something that you do with the skill that you have and it's dope that you can do it but at the end of the day like I love you because of who you are as a person um I think that is another important aspect to bring up just because a lot of us growing up as athletes like that's your whole identity you're an athlete you're a basketball player you're a football player you're a baseball player and so when that ends and sometimes you don't know when that's gonna end all of a sudden you have to figure out okay but what else am I like what other qualities do I have what value do I have you know what do I like about myself besides the fact that I can shoot a wicked three-point shot like you know there's I'm a big believer that that starts in college like we're prepping our kids for when their career ends not in a negative way but just the understanding that most of your athletes are going to play to their college sport and then move on with their life and so what is that life that's next um, You know, a question I'll try to ask some of my football boys is, hey, what what's something you want to pursue outside of football? And they'll always be like, well, I'm going to go to the NFL. Awesome. Pursue that. I love that. But also what else are you doing besides pursuing an NFL career? You can do both. Um, And so I just like want my kids to understand that there's so much more to you than just your ability to play a sport. There's so many so much more reasons to like love you as a human than just the fact that, you know, you can throw a 60-yard spiral.
0: Right, right, exactly, and I think that sports actually does a great job of laying the foundation for success in those other things, and I'll take a step further. The weight room, especially, the work that the athletes put in with someone such as yourself, Tessa, uh, I think is extremely valuable for setting yourself up for success later in life. I think that what you do in the weight room is arguably the last standing thing of delayed gratification. You know, if you want anything else in life, you can pull out your phone and have it in 15 minutes. Um, But if you want to be stronger, if you want to be faster, if you want to be more explosive, more powerful, uh, if you want to run a better 10K, whatever it is, um, you know, you can get there with slow and consistent work but you can't get there in 15 minutes or 20 minutes like everything else you have to show up consistently you have to put in time and you have to continue to find more and more ways to dig a little bit deeper when you don't think you can dig anymore and i I think there's a lot of power in taking those lessons that you get from the weight room and then applying them over to the day to day life. I mean, plain and simple, if you take someone who's the dog in the weight room, busting their rear end four or five days a week with you, I'd imagine they're going to be pretty successful in any entrepreneurial journey or any kind of like major they, you know, engage in in college, just because they have those same lessons and same mindset and mentality that kind of sprinkles over into that other area.
1: I think that's where you get this idea of mental toughness and training that in the weight room. But I think like the overall concept is correct. Like you learn a lot of lessons through training. You gain, you know, I mean the whole reason I started training in the first place when I was a high school athlete was, yeah, like I want to get stronger, but I quickly found that my confidence on the field shot up because in my head, I knew I was doing all this other stuff to be better on the field than just, you know, go out and practice my sport. And so The weight room just provides all these opportunities to grow as a person and also like repetitively, repetitively like try these things that help you grow in an environment where if you fail most of the time, it's like, so what? Okay, just drop the weight. Like that's something I talk about with my athletes all the time. Okay, like for example, girls hate pull-ups, chin-ups, anything of that nature, they're not about it. Most females aren't. And when I get new females, a lot of times, I always, I always had them obviously try a chin up, you know, where are we at? And they'll be like, no, I can't do it. And I'll be like, okay, well, how do you know that? And they're like, No, I just know I can't do it. Okay. Have you ever tried one? Well, no. Okay. So how do you know you can't do it? Um, I just, I know I'm not strong enough. Okay. So just try it. And my point to them is that I always say, if you try this and you can't do a chin up and you already think you can't do a chin up, what really happens to you? What changes in your life? And they go, nothing. And I'm like, okay, exactly. So get out there and try the chin-up because if you can do a chin-up, then awesome, you have a new skill. And if you can't do the chin-up, then great. Nothing has changed and we'll work on getting you a chin-up. And it's actually crazy the amount of girls who get out there and they're like, oh, wow, I can actually do a chin-up or I can do more of a chin-up than I thought I could. But it's like such a small, small event. But my hope is that they understand like, okay, but if you fail, so what happens to you? Nothing. Okay, great, so let's continue to try and then continue to grow through those failures because eventually those failures are going to turn into success.
0: What a perfect exercise analogy for this podcast too, is you literally pick the one that involves taking your own body weight and pulling yourself to higher ground. <laughs> that is that is perfect, so fitting. Um, you know, I think the other thing too I've noticed is I see a lot of athletes, you know, in their weight room, strength and conditioning, that sort of thing. And maybe in a two, three month time, they'll improve their you know, squat one rep max by 10 pounds, let's say, you know, in that time, does that 10 pound increase in squat strength, does that really make you that much better of a athlete on the field? Or like you mentioned, is it all the other benefits that come with training that we don't even consider in the moment that play into it? Is it the increased confidence? Is it the increased, you know, alertness, the increased overall just hey I put in all this extra time like now it's my time to shine because I've been working kind of thing like I I guess it's the kind of question of you know I think the weight room has benefits but is it strictly is it the physical that's driving the performance or is it more of all the other stuff and I don't think we really have a way to like answer it you know statistically or research wise but it's always something I kind of wonder with athletes you know
1: No, I agree. I think it's a mixed bag. I think both, like, obviously you get kids and they got to get stronger or they got to get faster. They got to become more explosive to be better at their sport at the college level, whatever level that may be. But I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's both. It's the physical aspects of training for sure. And the physical aspects of improving your overall athletic performance, but the mental aspects just play, I think a bigger role than maybe we realize at times.
0: Definitely, definitely. And, you know, recap in here, we've discussed a little bit of the training side, we've discussed a little bit of the nutrition side, some of the sleep side, a lot of the mental side and how that kind of all plays into this. The other thing I really want to bring up is kind of how they all blend together is, you know, every now and then you get an athlete who they haven't been eating well, they haven't been sleeping well, their performance is dropping, but they're still playing and they're still trying to push themselves and persevere And sometimes that works out really well. Sometimes it doesn't. And usually it kind of creates this downward spiral that eventually leads to some kind of injury. And I think anytime you talk about the topic of sports, whether that's football or basketball or whatever, I think the ACL is the one that typically comes to mind for most people. And I believe, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe the last number I saw was ACL injuries are four to five times more likely to occur in females than males. Um, And there's a variety of different reasons for that from, you know, Q angle and pelvic alignment to estrogen receptors within the ACL itself to ligamentous laxity and so on that way. But essentially, if that injury happens, that creates a whole nother uh, consideration, I guess you could say, of recovery where the sleep, the nutrition, the training, all of those things factor into a whole new level. And I've seen individuals who absolutely crush that process, and then I've seen others that it's it's a real challenge for them. You know, it's very difficult to put in the amount of hours it takes to literally go from not being able to walk all the way back to your sport within a year's time. And I think that's an area as well that you know we have to be mindful of. I don't care if you're a strength coach, an AT, a PT, whatever. When you're working with the athlete in front of you, you've got to play those mental uh, considerations into mind with the um, the long-term rehab athlete. I guess I'll call it here, um, especially in those that are more prone to some of those different um, things like we've discussed there. I don't know all the different factors that feed into that, whether it's socioeconomic as well, or different things like that. I'm, I'm not the sociology major here. Um, but I know that there's a whole depth of conversation that could be had about all of those considerations for the injured athlete as well.
1: No, I mean, you can, you hit it on the nose. Like, I'm not sure what much else there is to say about it. Uh, obviously I feel like the ACLs one of the biggest injuries you can get, as you have discussed, like they tend to be more prominent in females, especially sports like basketball, soccer, um, you know, high cut volume, high jump volume, contact. So it's always something that you have to consider. I've had girls on my roster who go through ACL, you know, reconstruction. And I'm still very early in my career. So I would say like working, having athletes working back through that, that's maybe not something I've had a huge amount of experience with, just because I am still pretty early in my career. But Um, From what I have seen with the athletes that I have worked with, who have had to go through that process. You're right. Like some of them handle it super well. Um, I've had athletes where they lose a bunch of weight. I've had athletes where they maybe gain some weight. I've had athletes. I've had athletes that have struggled with, maybe they like their bodies more when they, you know, weren't playing their sport and now they have to get back into their sport. And it's like, okay, now my body has to serve this purpose again. Um, Not to mention I feel like a hard line that I've seen kids struggle with is, okay, what is what is the acceptable pain that I need to be working through? How do I like mentally gear myself up every day to have to go through that pain and keep pushing past it? And what's the breaking point? And when, it, when, is, it, when is it healthy to say, okay, this is the breaking point. We need to take a step back. We need to give them a little bit of a mental break. Um, and I think that's something that's important to consider is like, yeah, you're obviously always trying to get these kids back as quickly as possible and as safely as possible and to the best of their abilities. And so that they are the same athlete that they, or even better than what they were before the injury. But you have to take in the amount of toll that it has on an athlete, like mentally, all of a sudden they're completely removed from their team. You know, depending on how your team functions, maybe they're not at lifts anymore. Maybe they're not at practices. If they just had the surgery, they probably haven't seen any of their teammates for one, two weeks. Okay, well, maybe you have a coach where they are not allowed to be at practice because they're injured okay, so now they're not at practice, they aren't around the team as much, they're not at lifts because their lift are, is rehab. Um, so when I have kids who are injured like that, where it's a little bit longer term, I do try to program for them, like, okay, if it's an ACL girl, I try to program where, hey, you're with us on our upper body days as much as you can be, just, be, so, just so that they can get the interaction with their teammate and feel a little bit normal. I think that's a big Thing that those kids struggle with is just like feeling normal and feeling a part of the team and feeling like they still bring value. Um, and yeah, I just, I, there's a lot of mental aspects to it that I think sometimes get overlooked, not on purpose, But just because there are so many aspects when you're dealing with an injury like that, that is a long-term injury, that it's hard to always consider every little thing and adjust every little thing so it's all perfect because the reality is it's not going to be perfect. Maybe you're pushing great on the physical aspects, but hey, maybe we need to back off a little bit because the mental toll of going through this every day is just going to be a little bit too much for them. Or hey, maybe you're a little biased. Maybe you're like me and you pay attention to the mental side a little bit too much and we need to physically push them a little bit more. Um, and I also think that's where it's important where now you bring in, Hey, we also have support staff and it's important that you and your athletic trainer are working together on it because they're going to see something that maybe you're not. And obviously you come from different areas of expertise. So they might be able to say like, Hey, no, this pain is good. She's chilling. We need to keep pushing her. But you're like, Hey, yeah, but she was crying in the weight room yesterday. And that's like the third day in a row. And I think maybe we need to take a little bit of a mental break for her um there's a lot to consider and there's never like one perfect way to handle it either you're obviously trying to handle it the best you can and then you learn from that and you hope that the next time you go through it you can handle it even better or maybe recognize some of the signs a little bit sooner
0: right right exactly at the end of the day you cannot compare one person's journey to another's because everyone is very unique and different in various ways And I think you uh, really, really brought it home good there. Ultimately, it's about giving the locus of control back to the athlete. And we've kind of mentioned that in a lot of different ways thus far is, you know, give the athlete the tools that they need to be successful and give them the keys to drive their own car wherever they want it to go. Um, You know, I think oftentimes we're very quick to recommend and tell people exactly what to do, but question of does the athlete even want to do that and you know in cases of injury where that locus of control is literally reset and flipped over um, it it can be a lot more difficult but anything we can give people to do that kind of makes them feel a little bit more controlled over their situation I think is value and benefit. I'm curious Tessa have you ever had to you know face or come back from an injury yourself in your own athletic endeavors?
1: Um, I've been pretty lucky that nothing I've had to deal with has been too crazy. I had a dislocated finger that had to get surgery on because no one could pop it back into place, but that was, (laughs) I was only out for like five or six weeks for that. Um, I was once I, as that healed, like I was doing pull, ups by the end of it, my little (laughs) finger splint. Um, I would say I did have knee tendonitis or what we think was knee tendonitis in college. So I would get a lot of knee pain, especially when we would play on, you know, maybe softer turf or stuff like that. Um, so that was you know it kind of my regimen by the end of college was I basically had to get cupped or scraped Um, had to get my cup quads cupped or scraped at least once a week to kind of keep that under control especially as I got more play time as I got later into my career so that would kind of be the biggest thing I had to deal with I was pretty lucky to be honest um, I do think part of that is just the sport that I played obviously softball is not a contact sport Um, and I also grew up in a family that was very much about physical and mental health. Um, and so having parents who preached that and taught me how to take care of my body, like even though I was still, you know, a very naive 19, 20, 21 year old, I did have some understanding of, hey, this is hurting or, hey, you're pushing yourself too hard here. Or, you do need to like eat some more food here to recover. Um, so I definitely give a lot of props to my parents for educating me and getting me to listen enough to be able to get through college that anything's significant.
0: Right. I love that. As you mentioned, there's, there's kind of a limit to everything. And uh, that, that in itself is a whole nother conversation of the youth sports craze and pushing athletes to, you know, play year round nonstop. Um, But we'll, we'll save that for a later time. I think we've covered so many different little points and topics today Tessa do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything that we might have missed so far
1: um i don't think so i think i think it's very important as you work through your athletes with this stuff to understand that they're not going to get it perfectly on the first try. And guess what? You didn't either when you were in college and you probably still don't right now, you probably still make, maybe not the best health choices all the time for yourself or the best performance choices all the time for yourself. I mean, ask a strength coach how much caffeine they drink in a day and then ask them to support why they drink that much caffeine. (laughs) So I think it's really important that when you have athletes who are who show you they're trying to make changes, even if the change isn't necessarily exactly how you would do it, or it's still not the best version of change that you maybe want. It's very important that you still you still give them their props and you still give them that positive affirmation and positive reinforcement because. If you give them positive reinforcement on one small change they made, that's going to make them a better athlete and not give them better overall performance. Then that's going to make them more willing to try other things or more willing to come to you and have more conversations about what else can I be doing to improve my nutrition, improve my training, improve my sleep. Um, You have to preach to them that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing approach. You have to show them that small changes matter because you know, you build a lot of small changes, all of a sudden, you have an athlete who's sleeping eight hours a week, and maybe, you know, eating one more meal a day than they used to a year ago. And that can make a big difference for a kid. So just try to try to be aware of where your kid is starting and where your athletes are starting and give them the props when props are due.
0: I love that. I love that. Know their end goal, know where they're at, support small, but consistent improvement to get towards that end goal. And accept the fact that no one is perfect, and you yourself might not have all the answers to everything, and that's okay. I think that was one of the most difficult things for me to learn, anyways. When I was first coming out of school, is you know the whole concept of I don't know every everything, and my way is not the only way. Um, yeah. So it's it's very difficult to learn, but it's a great lesson to learn.
1: Um, and your your kids like want to know that you're a real person, like. I think that was something I didn't really understand fully until I came over to the coaching side was how much stuff that my coaches were probably trying to deal with while also trying to show up and be these happy, positive, supportive coaches for us every single day. And I think there's a lot of merit in sometimes sharing the positives and the negatives going on in your life with your kids. uh, Because the more real you are to them, the more willing they're going to be to share some of the realer parts of themselves with you as well.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, for people who want to see more or share more about you, Tessa, where can they find you at online? Um, Are you on the Instagram era? Or are you on TikTok? Or where where can they find you at?
1: Uh, The best place to find me is on Instagram. I think my username is just at Coach Tessa Grossman, all lowercase, all one word. Uh, That's the best place to find me.
0: Yeah, for sure. We will link to that in the description below, too. That way, if you didn't quite catch it, you can just click there and check out everything that Tessa is up to. I got to ask, are there going to be like cat updates on the Instagram stories now? or
1: um, Sometimes, sometimes. I do. I do love my two little kitties. Uh, they, they tend to cause a lot of trouble. So, yeah, every once in a while, there's a cat picture that makes it up there.
0: I love that I love that. I'll be I'll be uh, watching for those. Uh, Tessa, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for everything.
1: Yeah, of course thank you for having me on. Hey
0: everyone. I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. RX is a at home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio, and you can use the coupon code capital D capital B R A U N Capital R X. So RX at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.